0: Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the Basis Study Group for Minority History. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies And the stanley burton center for holocaust and genocide studies at the university of leicester the study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of central eastern and southeast europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations for more information please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com i'm olena palco and today i will be talking to natalia Alexun. Harry Rich, professor for, of Holocaust studies at the University of Florida, about Poland's Jews in the 20th century. Natalia, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little about yourself and how you became interested in Jewish history? Uh,
1: thank you, Elena, for inviting me. And sure. Um, so I uh, started uh, training um, in history in Poland in the 1990s. And I was uh, trained at first as historian of Polish history and East European history. But I think at the time, a lot of us uh, young, uh, young historians were puzzled by voids, by, by silence, silences in Polish uh, historiography. And one of the big silences, was the absence of jewish voices was the absence of polish jewish history uh, discussed as part of polish history especially in the modern period so in the course of my um my training i started shifting from my initial uh, interest in writing about the polish uprising against uh, against russian um uh, russian oppression in in 1863 i started shifting to uh, writing about Polish Jewish history. And I became particularly interested in uh, aftermath of the Holocaust. Uh, this was at the time, yet not really as much of a big field as it is today. Uh, there was much less written about it. And I was primarily asking myself first about emigration of Polish Jews after the Holocaust. And then when I was writing my PhD about the Zionist movement, um, among the survivors, I was interested in questions of continuity and rapture, the ways that people made political, ideological, but also personal choices uh, after the war. And in a way, what I was really asking is not just um, a specifically Jewish a Polish Jewish story, but also how in those immediate post-war years, the vast majority of survivors decided to leave Poland and how Poland in a way became a country, not just with a void in historiography, but also this absence uh, of of Jewish presence. Um, So I only understood it actually later on how much this was an inquiry into my contemporary sense of Polish society, as much as as it was a historiographical uh, question. And after uh, Warsaw, I was uh, studying in uh, Jerusalem and in Oxford, and then went to NYU, to New York, to Skirball Department of Jewish Studies for what seemed like just one year of um, Fulbright Fellowship. But um, then um, just in 1999, actually, I discovered how much of uh, Jewish studies there was, how much of uh, huge field this was at the time, I think in Eastern Eastern Europe, not only in Poland, uh, um, Jewish studies was not uh, as developed. We didn't have the books, we didn't have the journals, we didn't have the access to this tremendous amount of knowledge that has been generated. So I decided to pursue a second PhD in Jewish studies and I did this at NYU. And I wrote at this point, I wrote um, a book, uh, a dissertation that later became a book on um, interwar Polish, jo- Polish Jewish historiography.
0: Your most recent research focuses on Jewish experiences in the Second Polish Republic. For the benefit of our listeners, could you tell us what makes Interwar Poland so interesting for scholars of Jewish history? How crucial would you say the dynamics of local inter-ethnic relations were in Interwar Poland, particularly in relation to the Holocaust?
1: This is a great question, and it will let me uh, say a few words about my book, indeed, but also some of the, I think, still opened big questions of this field. So um, this most recent book titled Conscious History, Polish Jewish Historians Before the Holocaust is a book in social and cultural history looks at the group of um, public intellectuals, uh, men and women who were pursuing history as a way of thinking about um, legal position of Jews in the second Polish Republic, uh, its past and future uh, with a sense of hope. Um, this was something that I found particularly interested, interesting in this uh, research that what these men and women thought was that Polish Jewish history teaches them uh, hope for the future, Uh, that Jews in Poland were at home, uh, that they therefore deserved uh, to be treated as equal citizens, and that whatever crisis in Polish Jewish relations Polish Jewish community of three and a half million experience at the time, uh, especially in the second half of the 30s, but also earlier uh, that this uh, may pass just like there were moments of crisis and violence um, in 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 historical past um, now. This book, I think the story in a way um Shifts one uh, one way of our thinking about Polish Jewish history in a second Polish Republic before the Holocaust. Uh, it's it's been thought of as a. Pr- particularly political history. There is a lot of work done on parties and movements, uh, on ideological developments, and it's all true. Uh, Polish Jewish community was extremely politically active and mobilized, but at the same time, in aspects such as historiography, people who belong to competing um organizations and very different ideas about the future between um bundist uh, socialists or zionists for example they came together because they believed together in pursuing this historical narrative as one way of uh, creating a useful past for for polish jews today that is then um but there is also a question of how much Uh, Polish Jewish community Polish Jewish history in the interwar Poland teaches us about conflict. And um, there has been very important uh, research done that um, looks at um, Polish political culture um, in the 19th century, such as Brian Porter with his work, um, when nationalism began to hate, uh, where he actually looks at 19th century, but it's very important to see it as as a way to understand Poland's political culture uh, after World War I, um, but also the question of um, political narratives, exclusionary, uh, anti-Semitic narratives, um, and violence. And violence that starts not only in the second half of the 1930s, which is usually understood as a crisis that follows the death of Marshal Piłsudski, um, a leader that represented a more open and inclusive vision of Polish society, a Polish society that would be based on shared sense of history and not necessarily on ethnicity and religion. So you could be a Jew and a Pole, you could be a Ukrainian and a Pole in a civic sense, right? Um, but uh, we see a lot of uh, research done that shows that there was a very, very common um, um, sense of, of Polish nationalism that was increasingly closed, that was increasingly defined in those ethnic and religious. Uh, terms, and it also could be easily mobilized for violence. So just to mention to our listeners a book that I found extremely interesting uh, an important, Paweł Bregczyński's book, Primed for Violence. He looks at the political murder of the first uh, president of Poland, Gabriel Narutowicz, but also newer research on um, pogroms in Poland, um, between the two world wars uh, by um, scholars such as uh, Kamil Kijek. Um, so we see uh, Interwar Poland, on the, one, on the one hand, is this incredible lab of political activism, cultural activism, initiatives, new organizations, new ideas, uh, literature, theater, uh, new schools, new pedagogical tools. Um, But on the other hand, this is also uh, a space in which the society becomes increasingly closed off to those that don't fit uh, that definition, very, very narrow definition of Polishness, Uh, which again is a question to what extent, right? To what extent uh, these ideas have long life, not only do we need to look for the roots in the 19th century, but do they ever die out, or how can we understand uh, their influence uh, on uh, inter-ethnic relations, for example, during the uh, Soviet, and especially during the German occupation of Poland.
0: Uh, Thank you. Um, Based on your research, how do you think uh, gender, class and ethnicity interlinked during this period, specifically in relations to the experiences of Jewish women living Mm. in interwar Poland? Did this double minority status make them more susceptible to, to discrimination and being socially marginalized, such as in access to education, professional choices and family life? Another wonderful
1: question uh, so first of all it's it's interesting that you um, you think of the status of Jewish women as double minority in technical terms um, there was actually a uh, surplus of women of Jewish women before the war and uh, a lot of communal discussions um, were uh, concerned with the demographic future of the community because whom would these uh, uh, extra women uh, in the Mary. end uh, married, right, so they were in a way a majority, but uh, of a minority uh, status. Uh, but they are obviously in a in a double bind in a way, and I uh, I can give you an example um, that I I studied, which uh, which is um, the situation of Jewish women at universities. Uh, uh, universities had informal uh, quota system both on. Um, um, ethnicity, um, race, uh, and gender. So if you were a Jewish woman, your chances of getting into truly desired departments, especially law and medicine, these were two departments that promised a degree of upward mobility, were very slim. Uh, Because uh, these universities, quite explicitly, if one reads... um, the protocols of, of, of the professors meeting to discuss the coming academic year, they were equally um, anxious about feminization of uh, the departments uh, of medicine uh, in particular and of quote-unquote being overflooded by Jews. Uh, so there is a double, um, Jewish women really are in a, in a problematic problematic situation. At the same time, this is a community. Um, I'm speaking here as if it was a you know a fairly uniform community, but it's not. You mentioned class um, um, so we have we have um, fairly um, upper middle class uh, families and all the way down to um, impoverished and increasingly impoverished lower middle class Uh, So their experience of both being Jewish and women were often quite different, defined precisely by the kinds of opportunities they had. But again, gender played a role. So as universities are becoming less and less accessible to Jews, especially in the 30s, um, a lot of Polish Jews uh, sent their children to study abroad. But parents are much more willing to invest uh, in the future of their sons than they are interested in taking the risk. Also, uh, a risk in, in cultural terms, right, to have a young woman uh, studying somewhere abroad, unsupervised, away from the family uh, and the community. So uh, so access to education is certainly uh, shaped, but I want to mention as well something that was studied by among others, colleague of mine Naomi, um, um, and now I'm blinking on the name um, Zeidman, uh, the new experimentations, which are networks of uh, schools for Orthodox uh, uh, Jewish girls, uh, Bnei Yankov schools, um, and so this is in a way again back to why interwar Poland second. Second Polish Republic and its minorities and Jews uh, that we're talking about today, what makes it so interesting? On the one hand, it's an increasingly difficult uh, um, situation, but at the same time, we can look at a lot of fascinating new adventures, uh, such as uh, organizing new types of schools, uh, schools for girls, new types of um, curricula, for, for young Jewish women, um, and
0: I think we will stop here. Um, in your numerous publications on the Second World War, you endeavored to write a communal history of Eastern Galicia. This explores in, par- in particular instances of what you term intimate violence, showing how Holocaust survivors approached the question of local collaboration and assistance, and how they tried to make sense of their strained encounters with people they had known before the war. How does this local aspect of the Holocaust help us understand the extreme nature of anti-Jewish violence in the region? And you touch upon this, but specifically, how much was the mass killing of Jews driven by external factors? And to what extent was it informed by the rise of antisemitism during the interwar period? Well, we're back to this question. So um, I, think, um,
1: I, I think that um, it's not one or the other. Uh, for me the the intimate violence um, is an indispensable piece in a puzzle uh, because it is ultimately the encounters between uh, between Jewish men, women and children and people that they had known uh, intimately um, that for many really define their chances of survival surviving or not surviving these encounters with former classmates, former clients, business partners, neighbors, um, um, nannies, uh, maids, uh, a whole range of social interactions that had occurred before the war and gave them um, greater or less great um, emotional entanglement and familiarity. Uh, This is not always... Uh, betrayal or rescue by close friends, but but certainly by people who had known one another on a first name basis, who could recognize one another on the street. And so, what what it means? I mean, I think it has implications on both um, both elements in this in this encounter. Uh, this is for the non-Jewish neighbors, broadly defined neighbors. Um, Something that Jan Gross had observed a few years ago already, that the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, and that certainly falls on on Eastern Galicia, uh, Western Ukraine today, uh, is that it's happening in the open, right? There is no mystery as to what is happening and what is being done to the Jews. Uh, There is no question of what one... Uh, knew or didn't know the kind of uh, historians of of, uh, Third Reich uh, ask of German society. Everybody knew what was happening because roundups and killings and and deportations, uh, bloody violent deportations were happening in everybody's plain plain view. Uh, So the element of knowledge is there. And then there is a question of agency. Uh, the degree to which these neighbors were in a position to do or not to do something. And I think that this is what for survivors that you started your question is with for survivors this was I think the most um, painful uh, piece of the puzzle. They uh, saw their former former neighbors as those who were in a position to take a stand uh, either to help them or as they remembered very painfully, very often do quite quite the opposite. Now, I must say that after all the research that I did, I I don't have um, clear uh, patterns that is uh, indeed in many testimonies, survivors say, uh, you know, someone that they had known from before the war as an anti-Semite turns out to suddenly do a very different thing, offer help, or not to take a stand in terms of uh, handing them over, betraying them. Of course, uh, I think that these moments are remembered precisely because they're surprising to the survivors themselves, but but there is no clean line that we can draw between um, where people stood uh, vis-à-vis... Um, what they thought of Jews, uh, right? How they perceived Jews before the war and how they acted during during the Holocaust. Uh, But then there is also a sense that for many of the neighbors, um, when the occupation, the German occupation starts, uh, it opens um, possibilities for acting out uh, small personal vendettas, Um, um, self-enrichment projects, uh, things that don't necessarily have to do with an an ideology. And that's part of the surprise as well, that people who, uh, again, back to the notion of intimacy, right, of of familiarity, uh, that survivors didn't think of these people necessarily as um, anti-Semitic or holding some kind of collective... Pejorative views uh, uh, against Jews, and yet, and yet they act in a way that um, that takes them by surprise. That is therefore seen as betrayal, because they are not seen as someone who would be um, siding with the perpetrators or or um, profiting from what is happening. Uh, to, to the Jews, both as a community locally and as individual uh, individuals and individual families. Uh, so again, the links are certainly there, but they're muddy, uh, and I think that it makes it very um, interesting to try to make sense of it. Um, and to and truly to push the envelope on a kind of uh, thinking chronological thinking about the holocaust as something that starts in eastern europe very clean on a particular day uh, right either with the outbreak of world war 2 on september 1st or with the beginning of operation barbarossa for the um, uh, territories that were part of the Second
0: Polish Republic um, that came under the Soviet occupation first. Uh, did you come across any instances, instances when those survivors went back to the localities where they lived during the war? Or absolutely,
1: absolutely. Well, so there are several scenarios of surviving. Um, there are those people who, um, and this is, the, I think, the largest number, uh, are people who survive by not being under the German occupation at all, that is, those that are deported or who escape or are evacu- evacuated uh, to the Soviet Union, deep in the Soviet Union, before um, the summer of 1941. And they usually, um, many of them, try to go back to their hometowns. And what they describe if they leave testimonies, some of them testify uh, for the Jewish Historical Commission, some of them testify in uh, court trials, Um, but they come to the situation that happened in their absence. So what they have to say is that their families disappeared, their communities disappeared, and they hear rumors about who among locals had taken place in it. And this this is, I think, again, back to that intimacy of, of violence. They are much less, it seems, in those testimonies concerned with uh, particular Germans, uh, right? The Nazis, because they are not familiar entities. They came, uh, they they organized deportations, they, they were in charge of the ghetto, and they are gone by the time these survivors return. What is... Um, painful and very real is often the presence of the locals that they hear had been in some ways involved or in some ways uh, profited, right? Uh, inherited a, a house, uh, got something that was left behind by the, by the victims. Um, and then there are those people who survive locally in hiding. And they are truly a source of very complex stories of of those interacted, inter-ethnic, interpersonal, um, neighborly relations. And they are, as I said, they're very muddy in a way. They're very few, I think, those clear-cut stories of, 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 uh, of rescue and of evil. A lot of it uh, changes over time. Uh, some people act one way towards some and differently towards others. Um, but, uh, but these are, I think, the most um, comprehensive accounts of uh, intimate, uh, intimate violence. And then there are those who survive far away. Uh, my sense, from again, from Eastern Galicia is that th- these are very few people who... Uh, this would usually be either people who um, pass as non-Jews and as such uh, they go into forced labor and are sent to Third Reich. And this is, while for the non-Jewish population this is a disaster for the most part, something you're trying to avoid at all costs, for, for Jews passing as non-Jews this is, um, this is a rescue strategy to be taken uh, as a forced laborer. Uh, or uh, who pass as non-Jews far away from their local homes precisely because they cannot be recognized, because they're not familiar to those around them. So this issue of, again, I think I'm coming back to it more than I anticipated, is not just intimacy, but familiarity um, that can be a source of um, support and can be a source of tremendous danger.
0: Um, Thank you. Now, uh, turning perhaps to post-war. Your research has also focused on antisemitism in Poland after 1945. How did the context of anti-Jewish violence change during the early Cold War? Um, In what way did the experience of war and establishment of Poland's communist regime come to shape popular antisemitism? And how did the experience of the Holocaust affect responses among Poland's remaining Jews towards continued state anti Um
1: Well, again, as I said, this is a, this is a great and, and, and very big question. But, but um, what I would stress is that, similarly to our earlier um, uh, conversation, I think uh, scholarship on the Holocaust, and I am certainly part of it, Uh, Is increasingly pushing for a more um, gray zone of the aftermath, right? Uh, So this post-war is seen uh, a lot like uh, as a a degree of a continuation of 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 wartime experiences uh, for the survivors. and, and it has um, a psychological aspect to it. Uh, people experience this moment of um, tremendous relief. Um, and I think someone should write an article about um, the first encounter with a Russian tank, or the first in- encounter with a Russian um, uh, Soviet uh, soldier, um, which for survivors, for the most part, is a is a triumph. Um, in whatever uh, situation uh, this happens to them although this doesn't always uh, protect them speaking about gender uh, protects them from from violence and there are well documented cases of uh, Jewish uh, survivors women being being abused and raped um, but uh, but yes there is this moment of a realization that uh, people survived and therefore sort of won the war against Hitler um, and at the same time uh, um, a lot of these uh, the problems that they ch- sh- that they faced continue and one of them and I think the most important one is what you mentioned that is that the threat uh, the threat to their lives uh, continues with uh, anti-jewish violence now those that survive, on the ground, uh, that were on the ground under the German occupation, I think are fairly aware of the fact that it's dangerous to be Jewish, uh, not only because of the presence of the Germans, that once the German gendarmes are gone, things don't fall back into normal, as it were, um, on their own. And so we have these Fascinating stories of people who continue with their assumed names, uh, assumed non-Jewish identities, um, um, who continue to wear crosses, who continue to pass as non-Jews, not necessarily because they decide to um, change this identity, although some of them do, but this is a continued use of a, of a strategy, of, of survival, which tells you something about a sense of insecurity, very, very basic sense of insecurity. It doesn't necessarily take a pogrom, although obviously the Kielce pogrom of July 1946 is a huge shock and, and triggers a dramatic uh, exodus of, of survivors. But I think it, it triggers this exodus because it coincides. With the peak of the so-called repatriation of uh, Polish Jews, or Jews who were citizens of the Second Polish Republic, who returned from uh, inside the Soviet Union, uh, this repatriation begins in uh, uh, in winter 1946, and by the summer of 1946, the peak of the of that wave uh, crosses the new shifted to the west border. And these are people who were not under German occupation. And so for them, I think it's particularly shocking. Um, and there are testimonies studied by Laura Jokusch and others that people assume that uh, anti-Semitism has been compromised by what happened during the war. I don't think that those who lived with intimate violence under the German occupation ever had these illusions people coming, coming uh, without that experience might be much more um, optimistic about a very new kind of um, relations that will be now possible for, uh, for Jews. They also don't know the scale of destruction, so there is a double shock that awaits them in the summer, early fall of 1946. Uh, the other important piece in this puzzle, and I think you alluded to it, is this concept of judeo communism something that has deep roots in the public discourse and um, uh, that's a subject for a whole separate uh, podcast how um, how early we should dig for the roots of of that um, that belief of of J- some kind of innate jewish links to um, a left wing politics and to communism uh, more Specifically, but in Poland it really becomes um, a unifying call for anti communist um, um, political spectrum. Um, And I think it has an element of a self fulfilling prophecy (laughs) because even those Jews who came back from the Soviet Union and who had seen. and experienced uh, gulags and uh, and the mighty hand of the of the Soviet state and are not particularly thrilled by what they experience. Even for them, it becomes very clear that there is really no space politically, no space for them to take uh, in the anti-communist uh, part of the political spectrum, um, because the rest of the political spectrum, which is very quickly also outlawed and, and made very dangerous uh, to be part of, but th- this is the part that sees them as, um, as serving the occupier, as essentially foreign, dangerous, and kind of you know one and the same with, with, with the um, not a very popular uh, new regime. Uh, so so Jews here fall really into a, a trap um I believe that is very difficult to escape and and there is something that um, um, we see in in a lot of um, testimonies uh, press articles and of course there's an element of Um, self-censorship and what one uh, should say publicly in Poland in 1946-1947 and Kamil Kijek has recently uh, uh, written about it, Uh, but there is a sense that certain trajectories are now possible in Poland that were not possible in the Second Polish Republic. Uh, that that people who are, are openly Jewish or people who are known to be Jews, even if they're not publicly um, uh, uh, defining themselves as such, are taking on uh, public uh, positions, um, visible positions, uh, in ways in ways, again, that wouldn't be unthinkable before. So, so that, and that, of course, reinforces the perception. So the post-war, uh, in especially the immediate post-war, um, seems to me um, still um, a great subject for more study in this, in this intertwined aspects of trauma, uh, of violence, of continued violence, Uh, great hopes um, uh, on the part of some survivors, but also despair about uh, the project of rebuilding communal life, both given the size of the the destruction that seems almost complete, but also a sense that even with the um, support that the new uh, authorities are uh, declaring uh, the integration in the society um, has not become uh, easier.
0: Turning now to the future of uh, Holocaust studies, um, especially in light of the current war in Ukraine, what do you think new challenges and perspectives uh, will you will face in both your teaching and research? Hmm. The future of Holocaust uh, research
1: Um, I think it's still a field that has has a tremendous energy to itself. Um, I think that um, the opening up to um, ego documents, that especially in the English language literature, is very visible in the last 20 years, um, I think opened new possibilities to go beyond... Uh, the study, uh, the organizational, institutional focus onto more and more uh, private sp- sphere, um, emotional history, gender history. Um, I think that the call for um, integrated history of the Holocaust uh, and opening up the history beyond this seeing it as a German project, right? Seeing it through the lens of uh, Third Reich. Um, and that has to do with uh, Poland, with Ukraine, but also Southeastern Europe, that there are all kinds of Holocaust projects, of course, closely connected to Berlin. There is, there is no, no way of seeing it completely uh, um, cut off from, uh, from the, the center, but at the same time that we can, we can and should uh, look at those local holocausts in their local contexts as well. So I think that opens a lot of uh, opportunities and possibilities. I think that increasingly, uh, especially in teaching, we see the need to um, incorporate um, some kind of comparative perspective, um, and that connects, of course, to uh, your second part of the question, that is the, the war uh, against Ukraine and the situation in, in Ukraine today. Um, I think that a lot of uh, Holocaust scholars have been discussing the degree to which the reports uh, from, from Ukraine um, trigger a, a lot of parallel Thinking um, that testimonies of survivors, right? Testimonies of, of women, uh, accounts of people um, making decisions about leaving behind some family members. Why while they were deciding to um, to um, escape uh, danger, uh, parents sending their children um, uh, to safety. I mean, a, a lot of these. Uh, scenarios of of how individuals and families and communities respond to uh, to brutality and, and and assault and danger and destruction of cultural um, um, property and 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 um, artifacts a lot of this can be seen uh, through the lens of how how we've been studying the Holocaust and so this is one aspect that I think uh, will um, will be very um, audible in classrooms in the West. I think there is also the question of how does it change uh, thinking about the Holocaust and Holocaust education in Ukraine uh, or in Eastern Europe more broadly, and how does it trigger into classroom and Holocaust education um, further away? Um, I think I'm less uh, concerned... With definitional discussions, right? Is this is this genocide? Is this not? In what way this is genocide? And then some people express discomfort because, after all, uh, what happened to the Jews is not happening to Ukrainians. They have um, routes of escape and ways to defend themselves. I think that in a way, these reservations miss miss the point that we are looking at um, massive. Uh, massive human suffering, and 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 that uh, that there are tools, um, and and in a way, I think that one aspect maybe maybe this will be the best way to to uh, illustrate it. There are already projects of uh, recording testimonies of um, survivors, right? Um, of survivors of of various groups that have been experiencing the war, um, and I'm sure at some point, um, um, survivors of occupation of of the territories that are now under occupation, uh, that are that are done. And, And the parallel to the understanding of the importance of the paramount importance in collecting the voices, right? Collecting the individual voices, and quite similarly to what was done right after the war. A, with the understanding that these, these can one day be used in court, even if these trials in the case of many of the Jewish testimonies never, take, never took place, not against German perpetrators, not against local um, perpetrators, but, but that hope that we need that material, that one day will be part of the indictment, but at the same time also as a way of creating a historical record. Uh, so for me, this is maybe one of the most powerful moments of of synergy of of parallel and I don't know whether people who create and I'm so grateful to them who who have created and who continue to create these projects also collecting blogs right collecting diaries written um, during the war already um, that whether they have at the back of their uh, heads um, the Holocaust case, um, whether this is coming from a different place of documenting urge, um, but I f- again, I find a very important connection here.
0: Uh, do you think the field will be uh, more inclusive when we speak about non-Jewish uh, vict- victims of, uh, of Nazi policies, say Roma and Sinti, because they still remain I very? So. I hope so.
1: This is certainly something that we need. Um, and again, there are already very important projects. I, I want to mention here uh, Katarina Chapkova in Prague, who is a prominent scholar of the Holocaust and Czech. Jewish history, but who is now very active in in the research on uh, on Czech Romas. I think think we need need the field to constantly question itself and to build on what has been done so far, including um, the scholarship by uh, Holocaust survivor scholars and it's interesting in how many ways we came back to a lot of the research um, ideas that they formulated in 1945 or even during the war, but, but yes, to include the ways in which we think about um, victimization and, and genocide
0: today. Um, but I'm
1: optimistic.
0: <laughs> Me too, <laughs> um, and and finally, you mentioned a lot of uh, uh, names of, of scholars, um, but what would you recommend our listeners to read? Um, you know, where where should they start about the topics and aspects that we covered today?
1: Well, um, for for um, Poland, um, and here I'm making a big generalization because I'm thinking about Poland. Um, in the borders of the Second Polish Republic, which is not a political statement, but rather a statement about Jewish, uh, Jewish victims who were socialized in Polish schools. And they most likely, most of them probably thought of themselves as Polish Jews. Um, so there is tremendous amount of research done. Uh, really uh, Polish historians became cutting-edge scholars in the field, and not just for Eastern Europe, but for, I believe, for the Holocaust uh, more broadly. So I would very uh, much recommend um, Barbara Engelking, uh, whose work has been uh, translated into English, um, um, and and her center, the center uh, in Warsaw, um, Jan Grabowski, um, Jan Tomasz Gross, whom I... Uh, mentioned um, earlier Janna Tokarska Bakir um, but if you start it's 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 a little bit like a snowball if you I think if you start with these scholars you will arrive at more and more and for eastern galicia um, more specifically i can't recommend um, um, i can't rec- i can't think of uh, other um, book that would be so opening for this discussion as uh, Omer Bartov's uh, monograph of, of uh, Buchach, which takes me back to what we started with how this is a story that is a story of Eastern Europe that is a story of Jewish history not just the Holocaust period and it doesn't start in 41, 39 it doesn't end in 44 45
0: Thank you Natalia for this uh, fascinating conversation and thank you for finding the time to, to join us Thank you
1: for having me